uh, which is about the taking of the Lord's Supper. So I wanted to talk about it first and look at the scripture first before we, before we uh, took the Lord's Supper today. So uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, in, in so many ways, the church at Corinth that we've been studying is just, it's just a world apart from ours. So, so much seems so different. Uh, Lord, help us all to see through the time-bound specific practices or the, the specific conditions. Uh, help us see past that to the timeless principles that we might understand and that we might obey. Uh, speak to this church in your word today and to these Christians uh, gathered together to worship. Uh, Lord, help the teacher today. Uh, give the hearers discernment. Uh, and all of us, grace to hold on to what is good. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you were to take a trip to Athens, Greece, and spend a few days there playing the tourist, one of the day trips available to you would be a short drive to the ruins at Corinth. You could go, you could go see ancient Corinth, where the church was that, that we've been reading about, or that you read about when you read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Or you could take another day trip just a little bit further. It's really just a, by car. It looks just looking at a map now, maybe an hour, hour and a half away. You can just take a little day trip, a different direction, northwesterly direction, and visit uh, Delphi, the famous for the Oracle of Delphi that you may have read about. You may have heard the, heard what that, you know, heard something about that. The the Oracle of Delphi was the presiding priestess it wouldn't always be the same person but it was always an elderly woman of good character who would from the town there she would be chosen somehow as the oracle of delphi and and she would be the you know the presiding priestess there at the temple which was dedicated to the greek god apollo the greek god we've you know we've had paul and apollos you know as apollos would have his name would be from this greek god apollo you know, it makes my, I, I came out a mixed I came out with mixed results. You know, my first name is Christopher, which marvelously oh Ofer in Greek is to carry, to bear, to carry. And so really my first name's Bearer of Christ. Isn't that neat? A bearer of Christ. But my middle name, Dennis, means God of wine. You know, it's just <laughs> Apollos named after this Greek God Apollo. You know, I'm just saying that to put it in in place, you know, he has a pagan name, this great teacher, you know, at, at Corinth that some were, were following. Well, in Delphi there, there's this temple at the same time, that, you know, that the, that the church in Corinth existed. There would be this temple to Apollo. And according to Greek legend, Apollo slew the serpent, sometimes a dragon, python, usually a serpent, sometimes pictured as a dragon, he slew the, the, the snake, you know, the serpent, and, and he either threw it or it fell into this fissure, this opening in the earth right there, you know, right there at, at Delphi. And the temple was supposedly built right over the opening, right over that spot where Python fell down deep into the earth. And the, and the temple was built there, and the inner sanctum, kind of like a, like a pagan holy of holies 
you know, the inner spot where nobody could go except the oracle, you know, the, this priestess or the priest, you know. Only certain people could go in there. Now, not everybody. But and see, there's this very spot where there's this fissure in the, in the earth, this, this opening in the earth was. And the, this, this priestess, the oracle of Delphi, when, whenever, it, when, so whenever she was called upon to do it, I don't know how it worked exactly, but they, you know, whenever it was time, she would sit on a tripod right over this opening of the earth and the fumes from Python's decomposing, ever decomposing body would rise up and she would fall into a trance. And, you know, she would just fall into a trance and begin uttering uh, prophecies in an unintelligible language. She'd just be, you know, overcome, intoxicated by these fumes. And the, the Oracle of Delphi would spout these unintelligible language. Nobody could understand it except the priest. The priest could understand it. And the priests would translate these utterances into, into poetic, uh, prophetic pronouncements. So that'd be up at Delphi. So, you know, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Christian Corinth? Or you want to, you know, the day trip, but the day trip from Athens. You want to go to Christian Corinth or to pagan Delphi? That'd be the wrong way to think about it, though. Because Corinth... Is very much like Delphi. <laughs> Don't think. It'd be just a mistake to think of it. Corinth, because you associate it with the Bible, you know, this Christian town, you know, this place where there's this, this church is that, that Paul, where Paul founded. He spent 18 months there, we read in Acts, and, and he founded the church, and he had great teachers and everything. It'd just be a mistake to think of, you know, the Corinth as the Christian city and Delphi as the pagan city. Uh, because Christians very much a Corinth is is very much a pagan town. It's don't think of the, like at Corinth they've got this mega church there that's transformed the city's culture into something other than pagan. Anything that could be called a kind of a Christianization, you know, there'd be debates about it whether that really happened in Rome, but anything that could be called a Christianization of Roman society was still decades and even centuries away. If anything, at Corinth, the influence was going the other way. Hence, 1 Corinthians. The church was being influenced by the culture. The, the more accurate thinking about the church at Corinth would be to think of this of this uh, relatively I say relatively small relatively um, compared to the city of called out ones who probably met together for worship in a home you can't there there's no ruins of the church at Corinth I, if you in in our uh, in First Corinthians, if you read the New American Standard, I mean, I'm sorry, New International Version, there's probably a clue. I see a little clue that the church at Corinth was was probably it, it was large it, it was large enough where it's still or small enough rather where it could meet in a private home even if it was a large one because he sa he says First Corinthians ten seventeen because there is one loaf 
we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Other translations kind of soften that idea up and say bread, one bread. New International Version says loaf. So you get this idea, or at least I get it, what Paul is saying here, he's talking about the unity of the body, and he says, listen, when we take the Lord's Supper, don't we, don't we break one loaf? Well, that indicates, it's, you know, it's not, we're not talking thousands of people here. We're not talking a, a huge number of people. Maybe it's a French bread, you know, great big, big loaf. But he's making the point, he's making the point, say, listen, we're all one body. When we take the Lord's Supper together, don't we break one loaf? One loaf, one one body. And the church at Corinth, you know, so we're not looking at some huge, big church that was was salt and light in the community. They were, but not so that, you know, this whole community has changed and Corinth is a Christian city or anything like that. We don't have many of the culture, cultural movers and shakers at Corinth. It says that straight out. It says, not many, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. So this wasn't a church that was really built on key gets, you know, key gets for the Christian faith. We got the mayor we, we got the sports figures, you know. We got people who are really going to, you know, we think that sometimes. Boy, if that person got saved, that would really, boy, that we need some high-profile people. No. If they had any of those, they didn't have many. Not many of you powerful. Not many of you noble birth. Not many of you wise according to worldly standards. But they were, the church was, infected with worldly standards affecting the life and character of the church. During the very uh, decades, at least, in the same time period that the Apostle Paul would have been writing letters to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth was dealing with, you know, working through these problems, and, you know, they were just living the life of the church at Corinth, that they're in that very same era, same time, a man by the name of Plutarch was functioning as one of those priests of Apollo up at Delphi. You know, if you were to drive just a couple hours away by car today. Uh, He is famous not as a pagan priest, but as a Roman biographer and an essayist. And one of his, one of his extant writings, you know, the things that you can still read somewhere and, or that's been translated, has become known as Plutarch's Table Talk. Now, there's a table talk associated with Martin Luther from the 16th century. And, but Martin Luther's table talk are, is things he said around the table. He had students in his home, you know, they kind of had a seminary in his home, and he'd, he'd have, they'd have meals together, and these are things that students remembered Martin Luther saying that he just, you know, just, just uh, conversational things that he would say, written down. Plutarch's table talk is not, from the first century, is not like that at all. That's not what it means. You, you read Plutarch's table talk. It's about proper decorum at table. It's about how to take a meal together. When you've got a group larger than your family, 
How do you do it? Uh, I actually read it so that you wouldn't have to. I'm still trying to keep, you know, I'm trying to, you know, earn my keep here. <laughs> but when I read it, it helped make sense of some of the things, or at least give a bigger, a better background to some of the things we read in the New Testament. One of the issues that, that Plutarch considered in his table talk was whether dinner guests should be seated according to social status or whether they should just be left to themselves to seat themselves willy-nilly, however they might, whenever they arrived at the house. The prevailing opinion, the traditional opinion that Plutarch represented, the conservative opinion, the traditionalist opinion, was that it was very important it's terrifically important to seat and to serve dinner guests according to rank and honor. Let me let me read just a little just a little bit. This is like the takeaway. I read a long time, but you, I'm just going to give you a little snippet, which it seems like the takeaway to me. He writes the greatest profuseness in a feast, no matter how big it is, how good the food is. The greatest profuseness in a feast appears neither delightful nor genteel unless beautified by order. And therefore, it is absurd that cooks and waiters should be solicitous what dish must be brought first, what next, what placed in the middle, what last, and that the garlands, the ointment, and music, if they have any, should have a proper place and order assigned. And yet that the guests should be seated promiscuously. And no respect be had to age, honor, or the like, no distinguishing order by which the man in dignity might be honored, the inferior learn to give place, and the disposer be exercised in distinguishing what is proper and convenient. For it is not rational it is not rational that when we walk or sit down to discourse, the best man should have the best place and not the same order be observed at table or that the entertainer should in civility drink to one before another and yet make no difference in their seats. At the first dash, making the whole company a hodgepodge and confusion. So for him, let me just get to what he's saying there. It is pure madness to give such attention to detail, like, you know, in the preparation of the meal and the serving of the meal. You know, you go, of course, you know, you bring, it's the appetizer, and then it's the salad, and then it's the main course, and then it's dessert. You don't do it in any other order. Yeah, that's how you do it. Appetizer, salad, main course, and the, and the dessert, and the, and the uh, you know, that's how it is. And if it's a really fancy affair, if there's some musical entertainment, you place it. You, you know, maybe after... Maybe after the main course and before the dessert, you know, dessert and coffee. If there's toast to be made, if there's toast to be made, of course there's, there's certain people that should be toasted. And if, if there are others toasted, there's certain people should be toasted first. I got the reception. You know, who's the toast for? You know, in our culture, the, the bride and the groom, you're not the kitchen help. You know, nobody stands up. What? You know, you do things in order. And he, sa he says it's just ridiculous to give such great attention to the proper order in all these other areas and then to have just a haphazard and, 
and, and general disorder in the seating and serving of guests. It's just improper to give all that attention to order. And then what? In the seating and the serving, every man for himself? I mean, you understand what he's saying. With poor people plopping their bones next to wealthy people? What? Important people find themselves sitting next to virtual nobodies and it's just well it's just scandalous. Dinner guests seating themselves and what a use of this word. Dinner guests seating themselves promiscuously. Without a without a thought for who they might be rubbing elbows with. Without a thought for propriety. Other, other places in the same treatise, he says, towards the effect, he said, of course when you have dinner guests, when you have people over your home, you have dinner guests, of course there are some that you speak with more than others. It's only right. And he says, and then he says this in a, in a place, he says, don't we, and he's talking about this is just how it's done, this is how it's done, don't we set the daintier dishes before the really special guests? So in other words, they don't even get the same food. Don't they get the better meals? The better people? And in summing up, he says, and this is a principle we'd have a hard time, we'd have a hard time disagreeing with, just the principle. Might quibble with the application, I hope. He says, disorder in everything is an evil. It's an evil. And he says, if you introduce, so I won't read his language, but he says, if you introduce disorder in a social context like taking a meal together, he said, here's his language, whilst they are making merry, it breeds contentions and a thousand unspeakable mischiefs. The poor people, the rich people, the noble people, the not-so-noble people, you put all those people together, let everybody do what they want, nothing but trouble is going to follow. Now this was, the reason I'm reading all that, this was traditional opinion. This was conservative opinion. You know, these would be the traditionalists. This is the way it had always been done. This is a way that seemed right to people. It seemed right that you would do this. This is proper. And it's, it's difficult for us to identify with how important this issue of the seating and serving of guests was at a, at a meal that's for a larger group than a family. It, it's difficult for us to imagine because it's just not like that for us. You know, we don't, we don't think in those categories. Uh, but Jesus even spoke to it. Jesus spoke to it without condemning the practice. He spoke about it without explicitly saying, that's wrong, don't do that. Listen to this. This is from Luke chapter 14. Now he told them a parable, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, 
Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus, you know, we don't think, we don't think of that, do we? Go to a communal meal, a potluck, or even a reception or something like that, and think about, well, there might be a table up front at a wedding reception. There might be a one table up front that's really decorated, and there are two chairs, obviously, for the bride and groom. You probably wouldn't go sit there. But other than that, you wouldn't think of it. They thought of it. It was important. You know, we, we take that, we could take this, this principle, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever, and who humbles himself will be exalted, and apply it in our own lives in different ways. But that ex- same exact situation hardly ever comes up. Jesus excoriates the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, says, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. So, wow, this kind of this traditional conservative practice of dining together with large groups of people it had kind of leaked into the worship in the synagogue, didn't it? Best seats at the dinner, best seats in the synagogue. And it had leaked into the worship of God in the ch- at the church in Corinth too. It's this worldly way of doing things. It just seemed right. It seemed like the thing to do. It's what everybody does. It's traditional. It's conservative. You know, that's what they were doing. They were taking elements of that, and it was, it was going into the church as well. First Corinthians. Now we're to our passage. First Corinthians 11, verse 17. And you want to be. If you have your Bible, we don't have it today on the screen, do we? We do? 1 Corinthians 11, there you go. But in, follow, in the following instructions, he says, and in 1 Corinthians, by the way, as we've said before, it's like a laundry list of, they had a series of questions that they'd asked Paul, and it's just kind of a laundry list of issues. First this, then this, then this, then this. Now he's going to talk about the Lord's Supper. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because in, in the, it, previously in the letter, he's commended them on saying, hey, you're doing a good job at this, but you could be doing this better. Hey, they appreciate you doing this, but you could be... He says, here, I don't have anything good to say. <laughs> I don't commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now there's some sarcasm in that verse that I hope you can see, especially with this background. What was the whole point of the seating and serving of guests in in the way it was done in their culture. It was to tell who is who. It was to show who's most honorable, who's most noble, who's most well-connected, who's most well-born, who's most distinguished, who's best. 
Best people, best seats. Best people, best food. That's the whole point of it. it what did Plutarch say? That the noble would be paid, honored properly and that others would learn to take their place. So, he's, so there's irony in this, sarcasm in it, because Paul is saying the way you all are doing the Lord's Supper when you come together, the way you, the way you and they come with a meal, they have a meal, and, and at the end of it probably, almost certainly, have the ceremony part of it. The way you are doing this, it's showing who's who all right, but not in the way that you think. It's showing that some of you people may not even be genuine believers. You may not be genuine Christians because you're, you, you know, you're acting like the world. You're doing what the world does with it, and you don't have a thought. You don't have any thought that is, a, that is a oriented in a biblical and Christian kind of way. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. He's saying there's a lot of self-exaltation going on at Corinth. When you come together as a church. If the church at Corinth met in a private home. It's almost, almost certainly true. Even if it was a large Roman home. It would have enough room in the dining room for. Well a limited number of people. Archaeologists say usually Nine three walls that had like sofas on them, three people on each one, and they, would, they wouldn't they would sit at a table like we would do, but they'd sit around the edge of the room and recline at table. Other parts of the home would be for others. Out in the atrium, <laughs> where the offerings might be sparser. The wealthy people at, uh, a wealthy couple, like a Christian couple or a Christian man or a Christian woman who would, be, who would be able to host a gathering like the church at Corinth would almost certainly have servants to serve their meals. And we know that the church in Corinth included slaves. We can only imagine what kind of social awkwardnesses <laughs> were minimized at, la- at least by the Christian masters eating in the dining room and, and the slaves and the servants out in the, around the picnic table out back in the atri- at the atrium. Paul says, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He says... Don't call this thing that you're doing. Don't call it the Lord's Supper. You've made it your supper. It's, it's your supper, not the Lord's Supper. Because you do it without a thought for the people around you. 
for, and, and here's a point I'm putting on it, but this is his meaning, for whom Christ also died, with whom you have been made a part of the body of Christ. The Corinthian believers had individualized and privatized their view of the Christian life and of the Lord's Supper, so they said, so they said, it's about me. It's about, it's about me. It's about my needs. It's about my desires. It's about my hunger. It's about my will. It's about Christ dying for me. It's Christ's body broken for me. Christ's blood shed for me. And that's true, and it's crucially important to understand. But for Paul, it's uh, it's also crucially important to understand that it's not just about me, it's about us. It's about us. It's about Christ dying for all of us at this meal. It's about Christ's body broken for us. His body, the church. So, you, you know, you see what he's getting at here. That this is, yes, Christ died for you. His, his body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. And, you know, we talk about this all the time, that taking these elements into your body expresses a personal faith and dependence upon Christ's broken body and shed blood for you. Yes, the one taking the bread and the cup. But for Paul, it is also, and it's very important, as we'll see, it's also an expression of our oneness with each other before the Lord. He puts it right up there with the individual and private aspects of it. That it's an expression of our oneness, our unity. Previous chapter. You can leave that up, David. The cup, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is, is it not a participation, a co-participation, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, or one loaf in NIV, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And it sounds, if you read between the lines here in, in 1 Corinthians 11, it sounds like the way they were doing it at Corinth, each family or individual was bringing his own food and eating his own or their own food. They brought it, they ate it. Tragically, there's no word in Koine Greek, which is New Testament Greek, tragically there's no word for potluck. <laughs> they could have really used a word for potluck. <laughs> it would have solved some of their problems. Potluck means everybody is free to partake of everything that was brought. <laughs> Occasionally at potlucks, you, if there's something really good, you do have to hop on it, don't you? You have to get, <laughs> you could get pushed away from the trough on particular things, but at least at our meals over the years, there is no such thing as not enough food. <laughs> There's no such thing as leaving hungry because it's all gone. Then in this context, 
where the great violation was taking something that's supposed to be an expression of oneness and unity in the church and turning it into something that did what? Express distinctions between one another. It comes this, in that context comes this passage that's so familiar to us. And, and as I read it, it's going, to be, it's going to be on the screen as it is in the Scripture. But I'm going to read it. I'm going to put in there the second... I'm going to put in there the advanced language of Southern English. Which Southern English has that second person plural that's missing from the Queen's English. That y'all. Because it's really talking about a group, not individuals. It's talking about the group. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to y'all. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for y'all. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as y'all drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as y'all eat this bread and drink the cup, y'all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's talking about something we do together. It's something that is to be a statement. Yes, yes, about your faith in Christ, about your trust in the broken body and shed. Yes, absolutely. I'm not trying to get away from that. But it is also to be a statement of our lack of distinction between one another before God. And because this is so, he writes, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup, by the way, we're, we're not, there's no y'alls in here. This is all individual. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, New International Version, King James Version, add here correctly, it's not in the Greek, but I think it's the point of Christ. Whoever eats the bread drinks the cup without discerning the body of Christ eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's how important it is. It says God has, for this disregard of the body of Christ, God has disciplined some with sickness and he has taken some home early. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This matter of how you take the communal meal that concludes with this ceremony of symbolically taking the bread and the cup, expressing faith in the broken body and shed blood of Christ, it's he's saying it's terrifically important, but not in the way that you think. You know, it's, he's saying to them, not like... Plutarch and you know the priest of Apollo not like everybody thinks you think it's important to maintain distinctions between yourselves 
you think it's important that everybody knows where they fit in a society and they, you know, the, the ones who are honorable should be honored and the ones who are lowly should learn to just be quiet and take the place out back. But to God, it's terrifically important that you draw no such distinctions. And yes, in a way, it is important that everybody know their place. In a way it is. But our place is to stand shoulder to shoulder with every Christian of every station of life, equally low, equally humble, equally in need of Christ. So it's not that some people need Christ and salvation from sin and death a little bit, and some need them a lot. Our, our need is total. No matter who you are. Rich, poor, educated, not so much. Country sort of people, city sort of people. Black, white, brown, whatever. So examining ourselves then, examine ourselves. You know, examine yourself, he says. It does not mean, oh, that we kind of think about our behavior of late and you know, think of if we behave particularly poorly or we have a sense that we've sinned recently enough so that we still feel bad about it, then you'd better not take the Lord's supper or God will discipline you maybe even severely that's not what it means if that's what it meant every person who's ever taken the Lord's Supper has taken it in an unworthy manner we don't come with our worthiness we come with our unworthiness the Lord and the Lord's suppers for sinners So we might come in confession, we might come in repentance, but we come sin and all. Examining ourselves in this context means we dare not sit there and take the symbols of the body and blood of Christ while at the same time looking down our noses. on anyone who's sitting with us or standing with us and resorting to the same bread and the same cup. We take, we do it together. We take our place together before the cross of Christ and we together proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. And to finish the passage, verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, 
wait for no one another. <laughs> if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. It's not about, they had a meal, you know, say, this is not about just getting your meal. This is not about you, it's about us. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come, which is Paul's way of saying there's more to say, but that's enough for now. And I think everyone here would agree. Uh, Lord, as we come to your table today, your table, may it truly be yours. May we take it humbly and may it truly express our unity in the body of Christ into which we have been called out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. We stand before you, each of us, we stand before you in total need. It is not as though some of us need your grace and salvation a little and others need it a lot. We stand humble before the cross of Christ, remembering the Lord's death until we receive the fullness of life and redemption and salvation when he comes. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.